The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be apportioned for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Those first verses were on my mind as I walked from Jericho to Jerusalem. Oh God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land. They came to life the weekend that Sergio and Yossi and I did that because what a dry and barren place that was. Okay, we are in Deuteronomy 23, verses 1 through 14. This is entitled, Holy Conduct Before the Lord, Part 1. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. One of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. The children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. When the army goes out against your enemies, then keep yourself from every wicked thing. If there is any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. But it shall be when evening comes that he shall wash with water, and when the sun sets, he may come into the camp. Also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out, and you shall have an implement among your equipment, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. I have, because it came in yesterday, a copy of what is near and dear to me. This is the Treatment Plant Operator Magazine, the greatest place on earth, speaking of wastewater treatment. And at the bottom, if you want to know technology, deep dive, electro-osmosis dewatering, you can find out about it here. Yes, I am a certified wastewater treatment operator. I've been so for many years of my life, and you will now learn more about that. The final verses of our passage today deal with handling of human waste. It's something that I've been intimately familiar with for most of my life. In high school, Dad got me into a job at the local wastewater treatment plant. I could go on all day, every day for months, telling you stories about my adventures there. 
But that wasn't enough for me. So when I came back from the military, I got back into the field for some years. Then I left it to go mine gold in Alaska. When I got back from that, I did a few other things. And then, yes, I got back into handling wastewater for several more years. I could go on and on about it. The stories would probably never get tiring, too. It's a great field to be in. At least the work to me is exciting and it is challenging. And it is one of those things that is actually doing a huge service for society in many ways, for the environment and for the health and well-being of people worldwide. Eventually, I left that to take up preaching, but I still have to take care of such things on a smaller level six days a week. Yes, I clean public bathrooms at a mall that I take care of. I can absolutely assure you that that is 10,000 times worse than working at a wastewater plant, maybe a million. No wonder the passage today says what it says. When things aren't properly taken care of in this regard, my morning job is as distasteful as anything that you could imagine. The one word I can use to really catch the scent, pun intended, for what I have to deal with is unholy. Hence, the Lord told the Israelites that their war camps were to be holy. It is that simple. It is as obvious as the nose on a person's face, and as obvious to the nose on a person's face as well, exactly why we are to take care of our business properly. Our text verse comes from Ephesians chapter 4. But you have not so learned Christ... If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to its deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. If I can give one general theme for all of Deuteronomy, it would be in accord with the title of the sermon holy conduct before the Lord. Obviously, each section is a quite bit different, but that is a good main theme for it. Some of it deals with conduct towards others, some of it personal conduct concerning hygiene, and so on. But one thing we need to do is to not get carried away in our analyses of Scripture so much that we make the word say something that is wholly unintended. It is a big and not uncommon problem, though. One of the sites that I quite often use is Abarim Publications. They have the best analyses of the meaning of names in Scripture to be found anywhere. And some of their Bible commentaries are very insightful. But their commentary on verses 12 and 13 of our passage today is so out of line with the intent of what is being said that I'm actually embarrassed to recommend them lest someone read it and get misdirected down such an odd avenue. Once we start doing what they did there, from that point on, we can make anything in the Bible say anything that we want. This is not responsible theology. We need to stick closely to what the text actually says and then consider any typological analogies based solely on how the words are fulfilled through the work of Jesus Christ or how they apply to believers based on the work of Christ. I just thought that I would say that about Abarim because I want people to be careful and not just accept what they read or hear because it sounds enlightening or insightful. I love their site. I enjoy some of their biblical analyses, but everything has to be carefully considered and not just taken at face value. You should even do this with the sermons at the Superior Word. Make sure what you are taking in is in accord with the Word. And guess what? The only way to do that is to is to, yes, know the word. Be sure to know this word. It is well worth the time that you put into it. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got two thoughts for you today. The first is the assembly of the Lord. It's verses one through eight. Verse 1, he who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. The variations in the translation of this verse are incredible. Most are paraphrases to help explain the obvious intent of what is being conveyed. The Hebrew reads, Lo yavo patsua daka ukerut shafcha bikhal Yehovah. No shall enter wounded, crushing and cutting, male organ, in assembly, Yehovah. The first words, no shall enter, are obviously tied to the last words, in assembly, Yehovah. The intervening words explain who is being described. Exactly what it means to enter the assembly, however, is debated. 
Adam Clark may be right when he says the following. If by entering the congregation be meant the bearing a civil office among the people, such as magistrate, judge, and so on, then the reason of the law is very plain. No man with any such personal defect as might render him contemptible in the sight of others should bear rule among the people, lest the contempt felt for his personal defects might be transferred to his important office, and thus his authority be disregarded. Whether correct or whether it extends to something even more general, the matter was understood clearly by the people. The word kahal, or assembly, is not the same as edah, or congregation. Therefore, it may be that such a person could be a part of the congregation, but not entitled to the benefits of the assembly. That seems likely based on the coming verses. In this verse are three new and very rare words, patsa. It is a verb meaning to bruise or to wound. It comes from a root signifying to split. It will be seen only three times. Daka. It is a noun signifying a crushing from the verb daka, meaning to crush. This is the only time that it is used in the Bible. And the third word is shofcha. It is a noun that speaks of the male organ, coming from shafak, meaning to pour out, as in wine or blood. It is also found only here in the Bible. What is being conveyed is a precept that has already been noted concerning the priests of Israel. Back in Leviticus 21, it said, For any who has a defect shall not approach a man blind or lame who has a marred face, a man or any limb too long. There's a word in there that does not belong in there. That's the problem. A man who has a broken foot or broken hand or is a hunchback or a dwarf or a man who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scab or is a eunuch. No man of the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect shall come near to offer the offerings made by fire to the Lord. He has a defect. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. But this precept now goes further. It is an expansion of the thought presented concerning sacrificial animals in Leviticus 22, where it says, You shall not offer to the Lord what is bruised or crushed or torn or cut, nor shall you make any offering of them in your land. The perfection of the Lord demands that only perfect sacrifices should be presented to him. The defects now noted in human males are defects that have been made purposefully by man's hands. If such sacrificial animals were unacceptable as offerings, how much more should those who are his people who bring forward their offerings be perfect in their physical being? In this, it is seen that perfection is demanded when coming before God. This has already been seen innumerable times in Leviticus. Anyone who was unclean for a host of reasons could not come before the Lord. Some instances of uncleanness, like leprosy, kept them away from him permanently. Some, such as an issue in the night, kept them away from him until evening. But the idea being conveyed is perfection. Only perfection can come into the presence of the Lord. Thus, being included in the assembly of the Lord meant to be considered a member of the Israelite society with all of its rights, privileges, and responsibilities. It is seen later that eunuchs served kings in Israel, but they were not a part of Israel. One of them, Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian eunuch, received a special blessing from the Lord in Jeremiah 39. Here's what it says. Go and speak to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good, and they shall be performed in that day before you. But I will deliver you in that day, says the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely deliver you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be as a prize to you, because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. In Acts 8, a eunuch came to Jerusalem to worship, but he was not considered a member of the assembly of Israel. Only those considered as acceptable could be a member of the society, and those who were members of the society still had to be acceptable at any given time to make their offerings to the Lord. Again, the idea is that nothing imperfect can come before the Lord. If you've got thoughts th going on in your mind right now about how you are imperfect, we'll talk about that in a while. In Israel, this was all typology. Like the animal sacrifices that were actually ineffectual, which is found in Hebrews 10.4, the people of Israel were actually imperfect as well. What they did and the way they were set apart was only anticipatory of something greater. This is perfectly evident from the words of Isaiah. 
Isaiah 56, do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, here I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than those of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Isaiah prophesied of a time when those who were excluded from the assembly under Moses would actually become an eternal part of the assembly through Christ. The irony of Isaiah's words is that those who are cut off in the body would never be cut off before God because of Christ. This was literally fulfilled in the eunuch of Acts chapter 8. Though excluded from the assembly of Israel under the Mosaic covenant, he was brought into the commonwealth of Israel through the new covenant in Christ, thus being given an everlasting name that would not be cut off. In other words, he was made perfect in Christ and thus made acceptable to God. The typology of the old only anticipated its fulfillment in the new. But this then brings in the words of Paul, who was speaking to the Galatians about those of Israel who still preached circumcision as a necessary requirement for being acceptable to God. There he says in Galatians 5, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. What Paul is referring to when he says cut themselves off is a step beyond what was mandated for Israel under the law. His words turn on the idea of circumcision. He is showing the utterly ludicrous nature of being circumcised in order to please God over and above what Christ has already done. And so he basically says, gee, If you can make God happy by being circumcised, then just keep on cutting. Maybe he will be more pleased with additional mutilation of the flesh. His words are both ironic and they are sarcastic. He's saying, if you're circumcised and you're pleasing God and that's what pleases God, keep on cutting just emasculate yourselves. And some translations actually say it that way, just emasculate yourselves. He's showing how pointless it is to try to please God apart from what Christ has done. If these Judaizers wanted to live out their lives under the Mosaic Covenant, they would find that they were as unpleasing to God as if they had emasculated themselves. They were still living out the typology and not entering into that which the typology anticipated. They had missed the significance of what Christ had done. In him, we are perfected regardless of the condition of our physical bodies. So if you know somebody that's born with a physical ailment, or a missing limb or something, and they say, well, how can I be acceptable before God? How can you not be acceptable before God when you are in Christ? It's impossible because Christ covers all of it. If entering the presence of the Lord means we must be perfect, and if the Mosaic law can make nothing perfect, then no person could ever enter into the presence of God. But in Christ, we are made perfect once and forever. This is stated explicitly in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Verse 2. One of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Lo yavo mamzer bikal Yehovah. No shall enter illegitimate into assembly, Yehovah. Here is a new and a rare word, mamzer. It is found only twice, here and in Zechariah 9, verse 6. It signifies a child of incest or illegitimately generated. As an example of such a birth, it would be that of Judah and Tamar, found in Genesis chapter 38. Judah slept with his own daughter-in-law, and thus under the law, such a child would be illegitimate. Though that happened before the time of the law, it still could be said to apply to the line of Judah that issued from that union, at least for a certain period of time. That is because, verse 2 continues, even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Again, the word kahal or assembly is used. Any such person, even to the tenth generation, could not enter into the assembly of Jehovah. The number 10 in scripture signifies the perfection of divine order. 
It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. When the tenth is arrived at, the cycle of the prohibition is thus completed. It is this verse that the author of the book of Ruth certainly had on his mind when he finished the book with these words. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. I was trying to hold up my fingers and count for you at the same time, and I got it wrong. Sorry about that. Perez was the child born to the illegitimate union between Judah and Tamar. As such, until the 10th generation, the descendant could be considered illegitimate. Hence, those words affixed to the end of the book of Ruth established that David was, in fact, eligible to enter the assembly of the Lord and to hold the office of king because he was the 10th or completing generation of the prohibition. You wonder why things like that are in the Bible when you see it. You're reading the book of Ruth, and there's this beautiful story. And right at the end of the book, you have this genealogy, and you say, what is going on there? It's because of this law right here in the book of Deuteronomy. However, it is clear that his ancestors, David's, were accepted as members of the congregation of Israel. And so there is seen to be a difference between the Edah, or congregation, and the Kahal, or assembly. This will be seen again as we continue. Verse 3, an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. The explanation for this prohibition will be given in the next verse. For now, the words simply provide the precept. What is said must refer to a male, not a female. However, this is taken by Ezra as an absolute prohibition. And he forced those who married such women to divorce the wives thus also abandoning their children. Ezra must have misinterpreted the law because this cannot be the intent of this verse, as will be seen in the words ahead. Verse 3 continues. I was talking to somebody yesterday about this. He emailed me about a question that I had not considered before. Uh, Nehemiah had appointed people to watch the walls on the Sabbath so that nobody would come and break the Sabbath. And he said, how can it be? He's having somebody work on the Sabbath in order to keep people from breaking the Sabbath. And so we talked about it. Well, I said that there are other things in Ezra and Nehemiah which they have misinterpreted in the law. It's very clear, and yet it's recorded in the Word of God. And so you wonder, why is that in there? They got it wrong, and yet it's recorded in the Word, and we'll see that in a minute. Verse 3 continues, Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. A literal translation of the verse would say, and this is going to be very complicated, no shall enter Ammonite and Moabite in assembly, Jehovah. Also, generation 10th, no shall enter to theirs in assembly, Jehovah, until vanishing point. Okay? The question is, does until vanishing point, or forever, as it's translated in this Bible, interpret the words 10th generation Or does it simply mean that the precept of not entering to the 10th generation is to be adhered to forever? The answer must be the latter. In other words, 10th generation is not, as some scholars claim, being used synonymously with the word forever. Rather, the term forever is speaking of the fact that this precept is to be adhered to forever. As long as the law of Moses is instituted, this must be. Once the law of Moses is over, then it doesn't apply anymore. But the word vanishing point is the word olam in Hebrew. It simply means whatever point something ends, and it may be a point that we don't know at this time, the vanishing point. The law has a vanishing point. It's not going to go on forever. Everybody understand that? Just so you understand what I'm trying to say. Olam in the Bible means forever. That's how they translate it, but it does not mean forever, forever. If it means forever, forever, then it's affixed with another word, ad olam, forever and ever is how it's translated. So when you see the word forever in the Bible, this is just a quick stop the sermon and educate you. It doesn't always mean literally forever, okay? All right, wanted you to understand that. First, the reason this must apply only to males is because David's great-grandmother was... Ruth, a Moabitess, and yet David was a member of the assembly of the Lord. You see how... Nehemiah and Ezra got it wrong because if they had thought through King David, they would have said, oh, 
This is incorrect. Likewise, his grandson through Solomon, Rehoboam, was the son of Naamah and Ammonitus. Therefore, it cannot be that this applied to the descendants of females from these people groups who married into the assembly of Israel. And further, the word kahal or assembly must be specifically different than edah or congregation. This is because listed among David's mighty men in 1 Chronicles 11 are Zelech the Ammonite, that's 1 Chronicles 11.39, and Ithma the Moabite, which is 1 Chronicles 11.46. To be reckoned as members of his chief fighting men, they surely had to be members of the congregation, even if they were not members of the assembly. Okay, you see how important a single word is? Because in the King James Version, you'll often find this word translated both ways. Edah, they'll translate it assembly and congregation. And kahal, they'll do the same thing. And it gives you a false understanding of what is being portrayed in Scripture. It's very important to get these points right, because if you get them wrong, all of a sudden your theology starts getting off on a bad tangent. Therefore, Ezra and Nehemiah, though having good intentions, misunderstood the intent of Moses' words now. Nehemiah clearly equates the words to the 10th generation with forever when he misquotes Moses. Nehemiah 13.1, on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God. It's a misreading recorded right in scripture. For now, Moses next explains why the precept is mandated. Verse 4, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt. Rather than when, it reads, in your coming out from Egypt. The exodus happened almost 40 years before this event that is recorded. It was a long, extended process that includes the travels after leaving. In this, the words introduce a new thought that is not previously stated. The Lord specifically told Israel to not harass these people. That's in Deuteronomy 2, verse 9. Then the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle. For I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given R to the descendants of Lot as a possession. And then Deuteronomy 2.19. And when you come near the people of Ammon, do not harass them or meddle with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the descendants of Lot as a possession. Despite the Lord's admonition to not harm these people because they were extended family who had been given their land as a possession... These same groups did not extend any family courtesies towards Israel, not even the basic necessities such as bread and water. But more than that, they were hostile to them. Verse 4 continues, And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. This was specifically done by Moab, as is recorded in Numbers 22. A singular verb is used as well. He hired. Thus it speaks of the people as a collective. This could be referring to Moab then, but in 2 Chronicles 20 verse 1, it identifies the two people as the same stock, even if they are separate clans. They were united in action, and so it appears that the guilt of hiring Balaam is imputed to both. Verse 5, nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. Balaam, who was hired by Moab, blessed Israel. However, Israel is reminded now that the original intent was for him to curse Israel. It was because the Lord intervened in the affair that the anticipated curse was turned into a blessing. Moses then explains why this is what came about, saying, verse 5 continues, because the Lord your God loves you. This is in the singular still. It refers to the nation as the object of the Lord's affections. And that affection is for those who they can be, not necessarily who they are. God is love, and it is the anticipated relationship with Israel based on the covenant promises that the Lord directs his love towards them. Can I ask you a serious question right now? Is God loving Israel right now? No, he's loving them in the covenant sense, but he is not loving them in the sense that they are being obedient to him because they rejected Jesus Christ. They're filled with perversion in their nation, and the last thing on their mind is the Lord. And yet because of his covenant with them, he loves them. Does everybody see the difference? Okay. This is seen in the words of Jesus, for example, the fulfillment of those covenant promises in John chapter 3. The Father loves the Son, 
and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Think of Israel. Think of anybody that's not saved. It doesn't matter. But there is a difference between Israel and the rest of the world. God covenanted with them, so he loves them for who they can be in a right covenant relationship with him. That's the theme of the whole Old Testament, and it's the theme of the New Testament, such as in Romans 9 through 11, which replacement scholars completely get wrong. Okay, The Ammonites and the Moabites were not a part of these covenant promises. As such, the Lord acted for Israel. But of this same Israel, most have rejected Christ. In this, God's wrath remains on them. Thus, the love spoken of here is one of covenant love, and it pertains to those who are faithful toward him in that covenant standing. For Ammon and Moab, this was not true. Thus, verse 6, you shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. The words are to Israel in the singular, meaning the nation as a whole. The aims and goals of Israel were not the same as the aims and goals of the nations, nor would they ever fully see eye to eye. And because of this, they were not to unite as nations would in alliances and the like. Does this prohibition extend to individual relationships as well? It is hard to be dogmatic, but it probably does because of the words of the previous verses. And because the next verse will speak of individuals from Edom and Egypt. What is evident is that David had a friendly relationship with the king of Ammon. Here's what it says in 2 Samuel. It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. Is that a violation of the law of Moses or not? I don't know. Okay, I'm not going to be dogmatic either way. But the law of Moses is very clear. Does it extend to a personal relationship? I don't know. Is it, hard to, it is hard to say if David's friendship with Nahash was a violation of this precept now being given by Moses. But what occurred in the rest of the chapter shows that the Ammonites remained suspicious of and at enmity with Israel. Nahash means serpent. And the son of Nahash turned around and bit at David just like a serpent would. Verse 7, you shall not abhor an Edomite for he is your brother. Here, Moses speaks of the individual Edomite. He was not to be abhorred. This was to be the case even though Edom came out against Israel with the sword. Here's what it says. Then Edom said to him, You shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. So the children of Israel said to him, We will go by the highway. And if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. Then he said, You shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. That's from Numbers chapter 20. Despite their conduct, Moses gives the explicit reason for why they were to not abhor an Edomite, saying emphatically, Ki achicha hu, for your brother he. Edom was the brother of Israel. Therefore, the Edomite was to be treated as a brother as well. Likewise, verse 7 continues, You shall not abhor an Egyptian. Egypt afflicted Israel, and Egypt attempted to destroy Israel. And yet, like the Edomite, the Egyptian was not to be abhorred. And again, Moses explicitly states why it was to be so. Verse 7 going on, Because you are an alien in his land. The people of Egypt had provided a home, land, and sustenance for over 200 years. When Israel left the land, the Egyptians that they knew gave them many parting gifts. Israel was a stranger nation in their land, and yet they were cared for. Therefore, kindness was to be shown in turn to the individual Egyptian as well. Verse 8, the children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. The Hebrew says, sons rather than children. In only three generations, instead of ten for Ammon and Moab, the sons of an Edomite or an Egyptian could enter the assembly of the Lord. What can be seen here is a practical lesson that has already been seen in other examples. First, Edom can be considered near of kin, whereas Ammon and Moab, though related, were not. Secondly, Ammon and Moab had intended to curse Israel without ever having any direct relations with them. 
Edom could be seen as a near of kin and thus in a special kinsman relationship with Israel. Egypt, despite having afflicted Israel as a master to a bondservant, was also kind to him as well. The bonds between these two and Israel were stronger and more enduring than those of Ammon and Moab. Thus, the lesson of forgetting the lesser matters and uniting on the greater and more enduring matters is being taught to Israel in these directives now. Holiness before the Lord, to this we have been called. We are to always walk carefully in his ways. Let not our momentum diminish or get stalled. Let us press forward for all of our days. May it be so to the honor of the Lord our God. May it be so that we live in holiness. May it be so every step that we trod. Onward toward the final prize, may we continue to press. He is our God, and to him we must be true. He is our Lord, our glorious Lord Jesus. Let us act in holiness in everything we do. And in this, his smiling countenance will radiate on us. Our second thought today, your camp shall be holy. It's verses 9 through 14. Verse 9, when the army goes out against your enemies, then keep yourself from every wicked thing. For consistency, the word army in this clause should be translated as camp. The same word, machane, is used twice in the next verse, both times translated as camp. It is the purity of the camp that is being focused on. When Israel went out as a camp to fight their battles, the Lord would be among them. This has already been seen in Deuteronomy 20, where it said, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Moses is noting that the conduct and purity of the people will have a direct bearing on the Lord's attention to them in battle. Impurity of the camp would show a disdain for the presence of the Lord, who is ultimately the one who would either deliver the enemy over to Israel or who would deliver Israel over to them. As such, verse 10, if there is any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night, this is referring to a man that has a nocturnal emission. If this were to occur, it would render him unclean until the next evening. This has already been explained in Leviticus. Leviticus 15, if any man has an emission of semen, then he shall wash all his body in water and be unclean until evening. In such a case as this, verse 10 continues, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. The Hebrew reads specifically in relation to the camp. Ve'yatsa el michutz la machane lo yavo el tok ha-machane. And he shall go unto from outside to the camp, no shall he come unto midst the camp. The purity of the camp is to be maintained. He is defiled, and he must separate himself from the camp, which is considered holy. That is to continue for a set period. Verse 11, but it shall be when evening comes. The evening is the start of the new day. It is this time that is set forth again and again in Leviticus to reflect the time when a state of defilement is ended. However, this is the only time in Deuteronomy that the term is used in this way, and as such, it is right to re-explain the meaning. As biblical days go from evening until evening, it indicates that the state of defilement lasts until the starting of the new day. Only when the old is passed away can the new come in. The evening then looks forward to the work of Jesus Christ. He died in the afternoon and was buried as the evening approached. With his death and burial, all defilement of man was washed away. This is seen in Matthew 27. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Verse 11 continues that he shall wash with water. He shall wash in the water. He is defiled, it is evening, and he is now being purified. This typologically looks to the cleansing of Christ as is seen in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. 
and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Everything in the old only anticipates the fulfillment of it in the new. Christ died, he entered the most holy place, and we enter into his death and burial. In this, our spiritual bodies are washed clean. What Israel did in the fleshly body, we participate in through Christ in a spiritual sense. Verse 11 continues, and when the sun sets, he may come into the camp. The thing about this prohibition is that it doesn't matter if it happens just at sundown, we'll say 7.20 p.m., or five minutes before the guy wakes up at 5.50 a.m. The state of uncleanliness only lasts until the evening. Therefore, it cannot be that the emission is unclean, but that it is typical of something else that is unclean. So, what is it concerning an emission of semen that so renders a person unclean? As we saw in Leviticus, this precept is actually understood by many religions. It was considered so in ancient Egypt. It is so in Islam. Babylonians, Hindus, and others consider such an emission unclean. Judaism to this day follows the precept in a cultural sense, especially those who piecemeal adhere to the law. Other religions as well understand this. It is something ingrained in the religious psyche, but it is not something that Christians consider defiling. The reason it is so is because the precept anticipates Jesus Christ. The Bible implicitly teaches that the seed of man is how sin travels to the next generation of humans. As all people, male and female alike, are born of man's seed, all thus inherit Adam's sin through the male's emission. Religions around the world intuitively know that there is inherited sin, even if they don't understand why it is so. It is the reason why circumcision was given to Abraham. In cutting the male member, it pictured cutting the transfer of sin in humanity. The Lord even called circumcision a sign. But a sign is something that anticipates something else. That which circumcision anticipates is Christ. Christ came born of a woman, but with no human father. Thus he cut the line of sin because no human seed bearing sin from a father was transmitted to him. The picture is fulfilled. The requirement in the law is ended. We are cleansed when we come to Christ's perfection and his sacrifice, pictured by the coming of the new day at evening. For the Israelite in the camp of the Lord, after washing, he remained unclean until evening. When the sun set, he could then re-enter the camp. This was merely a ceremonial defilement of the conscience that typologically anticipated Christ. Now in him, our consciences are cleansed. We are free from the consciousness of sin because we are freed from all sin through the work of Jesus Christ. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Verse 12, also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out. The Hebrew of this and the next verse is very obscure. Here it reads, Ve'yad lecha michutz shama chutz. And hand shall have to you from outside to the camp, and you go there outside. The word hand certainly is indicating a direction or a location. In other words, if someone needs to go, he will ask the sentry of the camp, Hey buddy, where do I go? The response is with the hand, over there. Thus, most translations say place or station. In other words, it means a latrine. Verse 13, and you shall have an implement among your equipment. Ve'yated lecha al azenecha. And peg shall have to you upon your ear. That doesn't make much sense, does it? The idea is that a peg will be used as a handle and the ear is being equated to something broad or ear-shaped. In other words, Moses is describing a spade with a handle and a flat part for digging. Tell me that's not a weird way of saying that, but there you go. Verse 13 continues, and when you sit down outside, vehaya bishivtecha chutz, and it shall be in your sitting outside. In other words, it is repeating the thought that one is to sit, meaning you know what, outside. The repetition is to ensure that the outside is where this is to occur. The lowest soldier to the highest chief were all to go to the designated place and do their sitting out there. Verse 13 continues. 
You shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. Vechafarta ba veshavta et seatecha. And you shall dig with it and turn and cover the coming out. The wording, though a bit annoying to us from a literal translation, has an obvious meaning. You are to take your spade, dig a hole, and then cover what just came out. In this is another rare word, tse'ah. It signifies outcomings. It is found only here and in Ezekiel chapter 4, a very important passage. Well, they all are, but Ezekiel 4 really gives you some prophetic stuff. And you shall eat it as barley cakes and bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight. Just a couple verses later, we read this. So I said, Ah, Lord God, indeed, I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I am giving you cow dung instead of human waste, and you shall prepare your bread over it. It is cooking with human waste that defiled the food Ezekiel was to eat. Thus, these outcomings were to be covered. And there is a specific reason for this. Verse 14, For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. The idea here is that of typological purity. The waste from a body is putrid and it is thus defiling, what we just read in Ezekiel 4. To do this in the camp would then defile the camp. But the camp is the fighting force of the hosts of the Lord, and thus it was to remain undefiled. In this, the Lord would be among them. Verse 14 continues, to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. The implication is that if the camp was defiled, the Lord would not be among them, and they would not be delivered. Rather, in offending the Lord, they would be delivered over to their enemies. Verse 14 going on, Therefore your camp shall be holy. Vehaya machanecha kadosh, and it shall be your camp holy. The camp was to be set apart from all defilement, and thus holy to the Lord. This is the main purpose of everything that has been said in these verses. The Lord is holy and he will not walk among those who are unholy. The camp was to be kept pure. Verse 14 finishes with, I'll stop right there. I now know why you are laughing. I've got the lizard right here, and he's, he's looking at me like he wants to eat me. Okay. Oh, that's okay. That's fine. He's right here, and he's very cute, but I'm not going to try to get him, because if I do, then we'll be interrupting the, the people online for the next 20 minutes, because they are really fast. But now I know why everybody was laughing. I thought you were laughing at my ugly face, but thank goodness that wasn't the case. Okay, verse 14 finishes with, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. The law is what sets the standard. To not adhere to the precept would be a violation of the law. The typology of the coming Christ must be maintained, and therefore the purity of the camp, based on the standard set forth in the law, was to be adhered to. If not, as should be obvious, the Lord would turn away from them. It is without any doubt at all that this set of verses was on Paul's mind when he wrote his words to those at Corinth. Though divided by a chapter, the words run concurrently from one end of one chapter to the beginning of the next. Here's what it says. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And he continues in the next chapter, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Everything that is said anticipates something that looks forward to the coming of the Messiah and of the true cleansing that can only come from him. All of these earthly ordinances anticipated his coming, and in him is found the fulfillment of them all. He either actually fulfills the precepts, or he does so through fulfilled typology. Either way, it is only through Christ that we are truly cleansed and set apart to God. As this is so, we should separate ourselves holy and forever from that which defiles. He's already set us apart as holy through faith in his work, but it is our responsibility to act in accord with the word that is now being given and to conduct ourselves in a manner which is honoring of him. Therefore, may it be so. May we strive from day to day to walk in holiness, to act in righteousness, and to live in the hope of that day when our full, 
final and forever glorification comes to be. May it be so to the glory of the Lord who has already fulfilled that which restores us again to our Heavenly Father. Pardon me about that. It's been getting worse all through the sermon. <sighs> okay. I'd like to tell you that somebody sent me a portion. You know, when people send me videos that are an hour long, I don't have a free hour in my life. I'll say that right now. I never do. But if somebody sends me a video and they say, I'd like you to watch from minute uh, 2730 to minute 2815, that's a big help. Now I know what's on your mind because a video can have 4,000 things in it. But a lady sent me a video yesterday, I believe it might have been two days ago. And it was from a guy that was saying that uh, I, this easy grace movement is destroying people all through the church. And he, it's sending people to hell. And he said that uh, you are saved and you must have works in order to demonstrate your saving faith. Basically, that's what he said. And that is so wrong. That is so incredibly wrong that I can't even begin to tell you. Watch the Thursday night Bible studies and you will see that. Okay. It's very clear in the Bible that you are saved by one thing and one thing only. The word is faith. It's you're saved by grace through faith. Okay, so it's actually two things, but it's one thing. It's faith, belief. Paul says that when you believe the gospel message, you will be saved. He says that the moment that you believe it, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. You didn't do any works to get that. It was by faith in what you heard. Somebody came up to you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. the word of God. Somebody comes up to you and he gives you the message of salvation. And he says, you are a sinner and you need Jesus to forgive you of your sins. And you believe that and you are saved. That's what the Bible teaches. Does the Bible teach anything beyond that for salvation? No. So if you have to do something after you're saved in order to remain saved then it was never of grace, ever. Does everybody understand that? If I have to do something 10 years from now in order to keep being saved, then it was never of God's grace at all. And it was not by belief because he says, believe and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise of eternal life, okay? People need to get their categories straight. He is taking salvation, which is a work of God, and he is then adding in works, which are a work of man. And he's saying that the two must both exist. And that is, I, I hate to say it, but that's actually heresy. The only thing that saves you is the blood of Jesus Christ, nothing else. If you don't do another thing in your life for Christ after that, shame on you. Because he died for you. But you know what? I used an example two weeks ago in the Bible class so that you can understand this. I speak to a guy from Japan. The guy from Japan says, I know I've sinned. And I believe that Jesus died for me. Woohoo! I'm saved. And he gets on an airplane and flies back to Japan and he never sees a Bible again in his life. Can he do anything that the Bible tells him to do? Absolutely not. He doesn't have any clue what the Bible says to do. You are saved by grace through faith. Please understand that and don't let anybody ever twist that out of your theology. If anything else you want to forget or screw up, go ahead. But don't let that be messed up. Jesus Christ alone saves the lost soul. Okay? Easy. It's what? Sounds it sounds easy to me. And you know what? That's why Paul calls it a stumbling block. Stumbling block is something that people trip right over. And here we got preachers in the pulpit that are putting their congregants, the moment that they're saved, right back under bondage. Right back under bondage. Please don't let anybody do that to you. You should do good works. You should read your Bible. You should grow in Jesus Christ because... Christ died for you. If you don't, shame on you, but that's your choice, okay? Please remember that. Don't get your theology mixed up in that one regard, and I will be satisfied that I did my job as a preacher. Everything else can fall by the wayside, but your salvation is not up to you. It is up to Christ. So please, if you have committed a sin in your life, and certainly you have, I would ask that you would consider what Christ did. Christ died for your sins, he was buried for your sins, and he rose again, proving that your sins are in the grave because he had no sins of his own. And if your sins stuck to him, he'd still be in the grave. The only thing left in the grave is the sin of the soul that calls on Jesus. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Please call on him today. Colossians 1.9 is our closing verse today. 
For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. Could a guy that was saved and never heard another word of the Bible do one of the things that I just read you, he could not do one of them, except be filled with all joy. But other than that, he would have no idea that it is a requirement of the Bible because he wasn't instructed. That's why we are to disciple after getting people saved. It finishes with giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. You're saved. Act like it. You're saved, learn what to do with your salvation. You're saved, tell other people about Jesus. Get them saved and then get them discipled so that they can also be productive members of Christ. Please. Next week, does anybody here disagree with what I just said? Okay, I hope not because well, I tell you to leave. No, I wouldn't. Anyway, salvation is its own issue. Works is its own issue. Don't confuse the two. Next week is Deuteronomy 23, 15 through 25. No way you will be bored. It is true. It's entitled Holy Conduct Before the Lord. Part two. That'll be our 68th Deuteronomy sermon. Thank you, Jay. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. Did I tell you before? Maybe I've said this before. I may not have, but when I'm practicing my sermon and I get down to that part, I always act like I'm you and I say it real loud. <laughs> Peter must think I'm insane. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I got a question for you. If my voice will last for another 10 minutes, I'm going to be very happy. This happened two weeks ago, too, didn't it? Okay. We're on the subject. I began the sermon with it. I'm going to end with it. Mention another time where someone is explicitly said to do the number two in Scripture. Uh, what? You heard me. No, no, no. Where is it where it is explicitly said that he did the number two? Saul in the cave. You can take this out and fly it around. Okay. He got it first. What's that? To Samuel. What? Yeah, well, I just wanted to know the example. That's all. Okay, there you go. It's the only thing I could think up to fit in with the sermon. I mean, you know, a little crass, but... Okay, here we go. Holy conduct before the Lord, part one. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. This is to be a holy nation. One of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. This is to be a holy nation. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. This is to be a holy nation. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, so they did not do. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned, because he is faithful and true, the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever, so shall it be. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. The children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord, so now you fully understand. When the army goes out against your enemies for fighting, then keep yourself from every wicked thing. If there is any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp as is just and right. But it shall be when evening comes that he shall wash with water until all watered up and damp. And when the sun sets, he may come into the camp. And you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out. Then you shall have an implement among your equipment, so I say. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse, so to you I relay. 
For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you, as he promised to do. Therefore your camp shall be holy, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this passage, even though it's got some very difficult things for us as humans to face and to consider. It is part of your word, and it's right that we go through it carefully. And we thank you that we have the sure hope of entering your presence undefiled because of Christ. There's nothing that will keep a person out, no deformity, no no limitation that we that we have in our bodies or in our minds. And we thank you for that because we all feel that burden at some time or another. Lord, I'm just not worthy of you. And we are not. And yet through grace, you have come down to us. Thank you for Jesus Christ who has done this. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.